It's quite interesting. I'm willing to be proved wrong, but no one else in the, in the Bible makes reference to this incident. Do I get a shout of wrong, wrong, because it is proved somewhere? No? If there was, it's very little reference to it, which makes it a little bit more difficult to understand what it's about sometimes. We've been looking at Noah recently, and um, over in Hebrews you find this fantastic verse that uh, Noah built an ark to the saving of his family, his household. And I think that's a fantastic statement, because it actually doesn't say that back in Genesis, but obviously those, uh, the writer writing that had probably a little more insight into it, and um, that's a rather wonderful verse, isn't it? Rather wonderful verse. But anyway, we're going to um, just begin by reading this, this story. There's quite a strong force afoot to delete this story from the Bible, both by theologians and by others. They think it irrelevant to the Bible and irrelevant to anything. And so... Um, there's, there's, someone has said there's enough evidence within Genesis to defend itself against everything that's there, which is absolutely true. Both Matthew and Luke trace the genealogy of Jesus back through Shem to Noah, one man. If you were looking at the program, Who Do You Think You Are?, Matthew Pinson's who do you think you are, was traced back to Adam through one man, Noah. So we cannot delete this story, or the story of the flood, more importantly, from the Bible. It's so important. So we're going to read read, uh, the story, and in a moment I'm going to reflect a little on Noah just to bring things into context from where we were before and how this fits in. But this is, this is the story. It's called the Tower of Babel. Now, the whole earth had one language. It's important to realise that because of what happened later. whole earth was a one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shina and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. It doesn't come across quite right there because uh, many other versions actually say they they used brick instead of stone and they used tar instead of mortar. You'll see that coming later. Verse four, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. They would be like sort of an unrestrained people 
like the, the ISIS people at the moment, which has happened anyway. Verse 7, come, let us go down. Is that important, come, let us go down? This is God. That phrase came in at the creation. Let us make man. Let us. This is not just God. Yeah. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth." In Acts at Pentecost, we know of the phenomenon of the speaking in tongues, where there's so many visitors in Jerusalem, and by a miraculous thing which happened, they all heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. God actually reversed what he did earlier by doing a miraculous thing. God did that there. He did that there at Pentecost too. The simple thing, and it gives us a hint in the story to something that we can learn from it. At Pentecost, everyone heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. The process of what these people are doing, although they all had one language, the, the project which they were involved in and their building... It was obviously the reverse of that. As a process of what they were doing, their message was going to be wrong. The message that they would give their community, their society, in the context of what God was doing, they were going to give the wrong message in their community. God had said to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make it a place of blessing, make it a unique place, a place where men love to be and love to know and live in the good of knowing their God, the wonderful works of God. But as a process of this operation, that was not going to happen. And we know that God would come, and he would get involved in it. I've got to... Ooh, thought we'd have a game this morning. Now, I think with nearly all of our eight grandchildren, we've done this time and time and again. And we probably don't even start getting to the top and they rush in and do that. And we do this time and time and time again, building the tower and it comes down. But God didn't do that. With the flood, he said, I'm sorry that I've made man. I'm going to destroy the earth. With this, he didn't. What they were doing, we read in Genesis 4, I think it is, that Cain was a city builder. There was nothing wrong with building a city. 
In actual fact, uh, Abraham said that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. That was a different thought process. He, well, what he wanted to do, he knew that what he was going to get out of this was found in God. So Noah, but Noah himself was a builder. Now, when I want to look at this story in the context of this, what I've just done and what the story tells us. Noah was a builder in his own right. He built a life of faith. God spoke, he heard, God said, he did. That's how you build a life of faith. God speaks, we hear, Julie in her prayer this morning said we want to hear from God. And that's what we need to do. God spoke, he heard, God said, he did. It was quite simple as that. We really need to look at this story in a negative way to see what they didn't do in order to get the best out of it. So there was no direct word or promise from God concerning the building of this city and this tower. Looking at Abraham, he involved God in every part of his life. Noah was a builder. He built a life of faith. God spoke, he heard, God said, he did. He built a family. A little while ago I mentioned the fact that uh, we read something very wonderful about Noah. We read this twice actually, once in, in chapter 5 and once in chapter 6. That Noah became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. The difference is, if you read the accounts of the, uh, of the peoples before that, it, said, it tells you that they had a son, maybe a son, say, and they had other sons and daughters. So it was only the first in the family that was mentioned. But when you come to Noah, it twice says, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It was a bit like Job, really. He raised the profile of his daughters by giving them names. By giving them names. Little things that were going on in these early years. But Noah built a family. If you look in the ark when it was built, you have Noah, his wife. Each son had their wife with them. You say, well, why is that important? Because if you, when we read, the, one of the reasons why God destroyed or flooded the earth was because each of them took whoever, whichever wives they wanted themselves, and otherwise they took whichever women they wanted. So if you look into the life of this man, you see him building a family, like we read in Hebrews just now. God built an ark to the saving of his family. The family was important. So Noah was a, he built a family. He also built a boat. We know that. I thought the other day, you know, when God had brought Noah through the flood and he was safe, he built an altar. You would have thought he would have stayed quite close to the boat and made a monument of it, wouldn't you? You'd have thought, I'm not going to move from this boat just in case God does this again. But 
God had given a promise that he would not flood the earth again. So Noah built a boat, and now we know he built an altar. So God brought him through. Noah might have tried to dismantle the boat and taken a piece with him as a remembrance of what had happened. But he had to leave the boat behind. He had to move on, because that was God's plan and purpose for the earth to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill, and to fill the earth. So that's where Noah was. He was a builder. So if we throw this story up against Noah's life in what he built, these people moved eastwards. They were all of one language, and they built a city and a tower. Read just now that um, Cain had built a city, but now there's, you know, this is a step further, isn't it, to build a city and a tower. You say, well, what's what's about a tower? Well. We have to look into, into, in, in the scripture sometimes to give us some ideas because the Bible explains itself if we know it as a whole. Towers were, they were icons of superiority. Icons of, we are better than you. They wanted to make a name for themselves, so, you know, we're better than you. Sometimes we can get like that as a church. And our tower is an icon of superiority. Now in Beacon here, we get excited when we thought about God building his church. But it cannot be, there can be no icon of superiority about what we're doing. It must be the name, which we'll come to in a minute. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and so he was an icon of superiority. Another thing we learn from the Bible, you know, looking at the history, the post-history, they were places of refuge. They were places of refuge. Abimelech, later on, a story in the Bible about Abimelech, and he tried to get into the tower where people were hiding, and someone looked out the window and dropped a millstone on his head. But they were hiding in the tower, place of refuge. Today... The swarms, the population of the earth we hear today. Maybe somewhere you're looking for a refuge, a place to hide. And the only place we can talk is, is presented in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is a refuge, a place to run to, a place to hide, a place to find security and safety and support. So the tower was a place of refuge. It was also a place of advantage in defence. So if the people were coming, being swarmed, you know, in a battle situation, they would go to the tower to defend themselves so that they would have an advantage over the other. As Christians, we live in a battle. Our battle is with our enemy, Satan. You know, and with Jesus Christ as our saviour and the Holy Spirit, Within us, we have an advantage in defense. One of the New Testament writers said, he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's quite simple, isn't it? The responsibility is ours. And the power is ours. 
because that's been given to us. And so towers, you see what was there. Just now I, re- I referred to, um, they used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Tar was the new commodity. It had new possibilities. It's, it's referred to two other, two other places in the Bible. Once, um, when Noah built the ark, God said to him, now pitch tar inside and outside, because this will be a floating vessel. You're concerned with water here, so it needs to float and it won't need to leak. So tar it inside and outside. So that's what he had to do. When I think of the size of that boat, when I think of the tar he needed, and the mess he got into, I thought to myself, well, that was a big job indeed, tar it inside and outside. But it was a preservative. It was a protection. And the other place is that Moses' mother, when she put Moses in the Nile, she, had, she actually put tar on that. And if we read this right, they used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. It was a fly in the face of the promise that God had given that he wouldn't flood the earth again. So they wanted to make a name for themselves And so they thought they would build a defence. And it gives you the reason later on. And if this bit wasn't here, you'd say, well, maybe that's not really the meaning. But it says, lest we be scattered. Lest we be unsettled. Lest we be moved away from our comfort zone. You know? There's two things I want to bring out of this story. It's the name they wanted to make for themselves and the contempt for the promise that God had given them. This was the second promise that God had given. And a result of their building, it would fly in the face of both promises. The first promise that God had given was that um, he would bruise the head of the he would bruise the heel of the serpent. And the the verse is actually a prophetic verse referring to Jesus' coming. So with this building, this, this people, that would interfere with what God had in mind. So it wasn't in God's plan and purpose. So it would cut across that promise, and now it would actually hold the promise that God had given about flooding the earth in contempt In other words, they say, well, Noah must have put this message forth that God had promised that he wouldn't flood the earth again. When it says that they baked their bricks thoroughly, the word used there is cremated. They tested it to its limit of indestructibility. And they used that to build their city and their tower. And I would just say this, you know, today the power of reason is set against the promises of God in many people's thinking. The reason, let's get a reason for God not being God 
and Jesus not being coming. Let's find a reason. Let's test this right to the very limit. Let's find all the arguments we can against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's find all the answers against creation. Because if you read, it's those two little words together, instead of. Like evolution instead of creation. And Jesus is just a man, he's not God. He's only a man. It's like, oh, well, he didn't die on the cross. He didn't die at all. You know, he, he just snuffed it. He, uh, he, he just pretended it, you know. Pardon? Yeah, that's right, yeah. He married Mary Magdalene, all sorts of things. It's those two little words, instead of, instead of. We talk about replacement theology sometimes. But it's what we have to be aware of in the church. All sorts of true truth that we read in the Bible is trying to be replaced by something else trying to disprove the value of our Bibles. Values of our Bibles. When uh, this guy here, Bill Cooper, called after the flood, he set out to uh, he set out to trace to research this traceability through the nations back to Noah. And when he started out on his mission, he thought, well, it has been done before. The Bible does it. And uh, there are other documents, basically of Eastern origin, that tell us of the migration of the nations from Noah and his three sons. And this man, when he started out, he said, if I can gain 40 or 50% of traceability through other documents in the world, I'll be satisfied. And so he went out to the European nations and to other nations, remote places, and he traced the nations, other than eastern nations, back to Noah through Shem, Ham and Japheth. And it came out as 99% correct. So we can't replace any of our Bible with anything else. In its entirety, it's perfect and complete and trustworthy. So they made a name for themselves. That was their intent. This morning I want us to just look briefly at those two things. The name of Jesus, because that's our purpose. Praying the name of Jesus and claiming the promises. Claiming the promises of God. You don't have to think very far in what we know about Jesus, particularly when we think of Christmas, about the name of Jesus, which tells us it's a wonderful name. Isaiah 9, verse 6, will tell us that unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall be his shoulders. And his name, his name, this is before Jesus ever came, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Boy, there's gold for worship, isn't there? When there's people here trying to make a name for themselves, our purpose, our goal, is to make a name for Jesus. It's to honour his name. And that verse in itself, so here we have the base, we have our worship complete. It's all about Jesus. As a church, we're in a building programme, and there's some things we need to get right, and always follow, and it's upholding the name of Jesus. I think our songs are wonderful this morning, great choice, Joe, because they, she did them, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, he did, that's right, yeah. The wonderful name of Jesus. It's going to give us fuel for our worship if we stick with this. His wonderful name. Peter in Acts, he reminds us of something else which is important too. There is no name given under heaven among men whereby a person could be saved. That's unique to the gospel. No other name but the name of Jesus. So when these people said, we make a name for ourselves, they got their message wrong, didn't they? The message is, let's honour his name. Let's worship his name. David, in Psalm 16, said this, I've always set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. We don't read anything about in that sort of story, do we? As they moved east, we'll set the Lord always on our right hand before we do anything. Let him be the place, the steering, the steering light, the one who gives us direction like Noah did and Abraham did. Let's do it our way. And as a church, we can't do it our way. We can't do it our way. We have our Bibles. We have the truth. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. That links with our story, doesn't it? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. In our story, we read that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. He came down to see the city and the tower. You read it twice in the story, and God said, as he, God went down to see the tower. In the second part, it says, let us go down to see the city and the tower. So here, God wasn't actually um, having a go at them for building a city and tower, but he was coming down to evaluate how they were doing and why they were doing it. Malcolm Muggeridge was once asked uh, by an interviewer, um, how did you become a Christian? And he says, I, th I think the better question to ask me is why I became a Christian. And he went on to tell his interviewer that it was because of the biblical evidence, it was because of creation, and it was because of the wonderful works of God. He said, that's why I've become a Christian. 
and I have need of him. So we have to ask the question, why? And actually God was saying, you know, I need to put a why over this story. It's not how they're doing it, but why are they doing it? Let us make a name for ourselves. And that needs to be always our question. Why are we being and why are we doing church? Is it just to have a happy, happy club? No, it's for the honour of Jesus' name. And it's for his future purposes through the church. That's very important. His future purpose through the church. And neither of the promises could be satisfied completely that God had given through this story. So he came down to see the city and the tower that they'd be given. The evaluation was being made in the sense of God being God. God's purpose in the earth through man, which was referred to in Genesis, but also the spiritual value of this building because it was being built in the wrong spirit. Nothing wrong with the building, but it was being done in the wrong spirit. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us do this lest we be scattered, lest God interfere with us and we get unsettled and we're not one people and we haven't got this solidarity and, and we haven't got this unique ability to look after ourselves. So the name is important. But the second thing is the contempt they had for the promise of God, or the promises, the contempt for the one promise in particular, I think. Noah had passed the message on that God would not flood the earth, and here what they was building was to fly in the face of the promise of God. And that's the other thing that we need to know. The church, our lives, whatever we're building is built on the promise of God and the promises of God. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellent by which he has granted to us, here it is, precious and very great promises. God has given us promises that we might prove him to be trustworthy and faithful. Trustworthy and faithful. If we do not live by the promises that God has given us, in a sense we have no way of proving God to be trustworthy and faithful. So it's praying the name of Jesus. And living in the promises which God has given to us. There's this little verse out of the uh, out of the Old Testament concerning the early times in Israel. It's in Joshua 21, verse 45, and it said, "Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled." God's faithfulness. We had God's faithfulness mentioned in prayer and worship this morning. The way we prove God's trustworthiness and faithfulness is through the promises he has given. In 2 Corinthians we read this, 
For we know that if the tent, that is our only home, is destroyed, that's talking about our lives and our bodies, we have a building from God. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For if this tent, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. One of the great promises that God has given us is that of his Holy Spirit. That of his Holy Spirit. To receive his Holy Spirit. Lord Rank, the filmmaker. And the man was a Yorkshireman and came to an early Christian experience of Jesus Christ. And he said in his mind with an intentionality to build an empire based on what he knew about Jesus Christ. Which is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Absolutely wonderful thing. He found to be a God, was a God of promises. And he found this last one. Looking back over the years, Lord Rank was conscious that his concept of the Holy Spirit was an underdeveloped one, and that he was by no means alone in this. In a typically pungent phrase, he said, in 80% of churches today, the Holy Spirit is the poor relation. Two experiences in particular convinced him that he needed to rethink thoroughly his attitude towards this great tenet of the Christian faith. The first occurred when he read a book by Andrew Murray called The Spirit of Christ. The second was when he heard a talk given by an American evangelist who was visiting London. I wonder who that was. And who, in a conversation after one of the meetings, told Lord Rank, God is a good God, and he will particularly bless you in a few days. Sure enough, while in Scotland, some days later, there came over Lord Rank an overpowering awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence in his life. Following this new awareness, a firm belief grew in his mind that since the first great outpouring of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, all men must have this spirit within them. The trouble was that tragically too many were not conscious of it and so ignored this one great influence which could completely transform industry, commerce, government, education, and the church. And from there he went on to set up a, a call line for youngsters to teenagers who found great blessing through that. Claiming the promises of God. I think we need to claim that over our church this morning, living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. As we move on in life, as we seek to build a church, as we seek to build our lives. And I'd like to pray for us at the end if you feel you just want to move on and just to receive afresh the power of the Holy Spirit in your life because this is the promise of God you know what it says in Acts the promise it is called the promise the promise of the Holy Spirit I just want to finish by reading 
a couple of stories that pull these things together as we pray the name of Jesus and we set out to claim the promises that he has given. I felt particularly this morning as I was preparing, there's one promise in particular that might be helpful to someone. It's found in Isaiah 54. It says, your maker is your husband. In relationships we get, we feel let down sometimes and we feel we're not having that intimacy that we should do with the other person or with anybody. Because life's thrown all sorts of problems at us and we lose that sense of intimacy in our lives which we so need just to give us strength for the day and to live our lives with God, that intimacy. Sometimes it's lost through loss of loved ones, sometimes it's lost because of breakdown in relationships, sometimes it's lost through, through many other reasons. But what he's saying, that intimacy which you are so looking for can be found in Jesus Christ. We sing that new song which we've had composed by Ollie Knight. You're my treasure, my great reward. And I can just say to you this morning, if you want comfort and peace and intimacy in your life, Jesus. Jesus. If you're discontent with life or you, you see that you're not going to be satisfied with things which are coming along, Jesus. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. But contentment's a very hard thing to find in this world. But it can be found in Jesus. This lady writes, I've heard many stories that drive the fact of praying the name of Jesus. By walking to her car in a deserted garage one night, a thug accosted her knife in hand. And though she was terrified this woman managed to command her would-be mugger, carjacker, rapist, murderer, or whatever he was, get away from me in the name of Jesus. To her astonishment, though they were alone in the garage, the man backed up as though someone had just threatened him with a knife. Then he turned and fled. I don't know who E.P. Scott was, but this is a story about him. He was a missionary to India. One day he decided to visit a mountain tribe who had never heard of Jesus. But as he approached the mountain, a band of angry tribesmen surrounded him with spears pointed straight at his chest. On impulse, the missionary took out the violin he was carrying, closed his eyes, and began playing and singing a hymn in their native language. When Scott finally found the courage to open his eyes, he was amazed to see that his attackers had dropped their spears and that several of them had tears in their eyes. Scott spent the rest of his life preaching and serving the people of that tribe, many of whom became believers. What was the hymn he sang? All praise the power of Jesus' name. And as a church, we need to remember two things. Let's pray the name of Jesus. Let's pray saviour over Herm Bay. Let's pray saviour over our families. Let's pray saviour over our relations. Because that's what he hears. His name shall be called Jesus. Because he will save the people from their sins. The name and the promise, both together. He will save his people from their sins. How wonderful is our Jesus.
How wonderful and mighty is he. Power in the name is... What is your situation? What's that difficult situation you've got this morning? You need to pray the name of Jesus over that situation because there's power in the name of Jesus. Let's stand till we end. We're just... uh, Let's reach out.